service, for your prayers for us. We turn now to the time of the preaching of God's Word. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 9 in the Old Testament, this is a rather lengthy passage, one of the longest readings that we'll likely have uh, in a church service of one single text, but um, my hope is to cover through this passage uh, a very interesting story, uh, not much unlike a lot of political stories that we hear of mutiny and conspiracy theories and all kinds of things happening, people turning against each other at every different opportunity that they have. Judges chapter 9, we'll read from verse 1 all the way to the end of this chapter. Hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am bone, I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in in all the ears of the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, Let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then 
You have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day. Then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Millo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and Beth Millo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by by them along the way, and it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel? And is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people that you despise? Go out now and fight them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, And Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told, 
He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold of the house of el Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down the bundle of the brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the, against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman has killed me. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he had committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Ascends the reading of the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let us pray and ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you now and ask that you would open our eyes to be able to understand what this word has for us this morning. Lord, would you clear out the thoughts, the desires of our hearts that would lead us astray into other things, that we might understand your word and hear it for the salvation of our souls, the strengthening of our hearts, not only to see Jesus Christ, but also to see the path that he has called us to walk. We ask this in his name. Amen. This is a very interesting story for us this morning. It presents to us one of the more challenging things in all of Scripture. And in fact, it touches on one of the most challenging things in all of the book of Judges. It helps us to reckon with one of the most difficult realities that all humans ask seemingly at some point in their life. It's the question of a word I will use and then explain called theodicy. You say, Pastor Nate, what is theodicy? Well, it's the problem of evil. Theodicy comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and dysi comes from the Greek word 
dikaios, or righteousness, or justice. God's justice. And in that, we ask this question, how can God be good when there is so much evil in this world? How can God exist if we see evil in this world? If he is a, as Christians say, an all-powerful, all-loving, all-good God, then why does he permit evil to exist? Or as we see in this passage here in chapter 9, verse 22, or that God sends an evil spirit. How do we make sense of this? What is its purpose for us? And as we navigate through the rest of book, the book of Judges, we must answer this question because it will only become worse and worse as we go on. This question of the goodness of God in the presence of evil people doing evil and growing worse and worse, how do we make sense of it? That's what I would like us to look at this morning, this question of the problem of evil. How can a good God be sovereign over all of these things and yet still be good? There is something else that we would, we'll see in this text this morning. It's that God deals in what we call strict justice. Is he repays evil for evil. He pays back the wrong that's done accordingly to the nature of its evil. And he deals especially with his kings. Abimelech is the very first king in the entire Bible. Now he is anointed and made king in a very wrong way. The people of Israel do this in a wrong way, as we'll see. But how does God deal with his king, and how does that figure into this question of God judging evil with this evil king and how we think about this question of evil in the world and a good God. So that's where I would like us to think about, what I would like us to think about this morning as we dive into this text. There are three scenes we're going to look at. The first scene is a family split. The second scene is an opportunist. And the last scene is the fire and the stone that come. The family split is first, the family split of Jerubbabel and, and his son in particular, Abimelech. We see at the beginning, Abimelech's son, or Abimelech is Gideon's son. We saw last week that, that Gideon ruled over Israel, and he was a, a judge, one of the judges of the book of Judges, and he dies, but he names a son Abimelech which means my father is king. It's an ir irony we saw last time because Gideon had refused kingship, yet here he shows his heart's desire is really to be king. Even though externally he refuses the responsibility of being king, he still wants that. He still wants the power for himself. And we see that exemplified in the naming of the son, my father is king, Abimelech. And so this son Abimelech grows up and he's the child of a concubine, a servant, a slave. She's not worthy enough to be his wife, so he holds her as this woman, part of his harem, you could say. And as Abimelech grows up, he starts to follow in his father's footsteps. He wants to have power for himself. He wants to be king. He wants to live up to his name. If my father is king, then I want to be king myself. Now, Abimelech lives in a town called Shechem. It's in central Israel, a little bit north of Jerusalem. 
And there are two mountains immediately on either side, north and south of Shechem, a few miles away on either side that you can look up and see. We saw this described in the situation when Gaal looks out and he says, the mountains, there's people. And he's likely looking up to these two mountains, Mount Gerizim that we hear of in this text, and another mountain, Mount Ebal. And that's important for us for some details that will come out in just a minute. But we see Abimelech wants power. And he is an opportunist. He capitalizes on this moment. We wonder, were they unhappy about this arrangement? Gideon taking this woman as his concubine as usually a political power play to form alliances. Is this what the people of Shechem wanted? We don't know, but at least it seems to be that they are not friendly towards Jerubbabel or Gideon, as he is also called. So Abimelech, wanting to be king, knows he's got a lot of other suitors that are coming before him. Seventy, in fact. Seventy brothers that he has who would be king before him. And so he does what an evil man does when he wants to be king. He gets rid of all of his enemies, all those who would stand in his way of becoming king. And he hatches this plan. He's a nepotist. He wants to take power based upon his family right. He appeals, says, I'm part of your family. We see this in verses In verse 2, he says, Remember also that I am bone, your bone and your flesh. He says, This is why I should be king. And the basis of this appeal is not on anything that Scripture has told us about why somebody should be anointed king in Israel. Moses had told the people of Israel that there would be a king one day. They would ask for a king. But what is the basis here? Well, for Abimelech, it is simply that I want to be king because I'm your brother. I'm your bone and your flesh. Echoing Adam's words to Eve, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he hatches this plan and then hires, ironically, worthless men. Seventy pieces of silver. And with this, he buys men who are worth nothing. And then he goes back to his hometown and he kills, or he goes back to where his brothers live, and he kills all 70 of them, save one. He goes through and wipes them all out. The text tells us kills them on one stone or with one stone. And we see here the decline in Israel is beginning to accelerate. Just this first generation after Gideon, this powerful deliverer of Israel, we now see mutiny among the people growing even more. They're now turning against themselves. Sons against sons. Brothers against brothers. And the slide is accelerating in Israel. But the text tells us that one son survives. The youngest son, Jotham. And this Hebrew word could also be translated the smallest. Maybe he was the youngest, maybe he wasn't, but he's certainly small enough to hide and get away. The littlest son, the youngest one, the least powerful one gets away. He was able to escape. But we see the devastating results. The people of Shechem, the rulers of Shechem come, verse 6, they come together and they anoint Abimelech as king. This is our king. This ruthless, bloodthirsty man 
attacking and killing all of his brothers. They anoint him king. And then this brother, Jotham, this one remaining son comes out. He hears of it. He hears that Abimelech is now made king over all the people of Shechem. And he has a word for them. He has a story. Some call it even a fable. It's ironic. The smallest man is now proclaiming with the loudest voice God's truth to his people. Never a popular thing. As we see, he has to run away and hide at the end. Now he goes and tells this story of trees, but the text tells us that he goes on top of Mount Gerizim. Now we think, why, that's no big deal. It's just a mountain. He probably can be heard better. This is no small, insignificant detail that's given to us in this passage. Mount Gerizim is where Moses told the people of God when they entered the promised land that they would announce the blessings of God's covenant for them. Deuteronomy eleven twenty nine says, And when the Lord your God brings you into that land where you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Mount Gerizim was the place where they were to declare the blessing of God for his people should they remain faithful to his covenant. And on Mount Ebal, just a few miles away, they would announce the curses should they remain unfaithful to God's covenant. But now the Mount of Blessing is turned into the Mount of Cursing. It is as if to say there is no more blessing that remains for the people of God. And Jotham's story, his fable, reveals the duplicity, the conspiracy, the violence against Gideon, God's servant, and his family. Earlier, in, at the end of chapter 8, it says, verse 34, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the house and family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And this is what Jotham does. He lays out the sins of the leaders of Shechem. He lays out the sins of Abimelech, this newly anointed king, to convict them and to show them the punishment that will come should the truth of their hearts be real. Now this story is actually not saying an even possibility. It is ultimately saying, this is what is going to happen to you. Jotham lays out their curses. He lays out their disobedience clearly for them. There will be retribution for their sin. They will be judged. Fire will come out. They will be devoured. They will not get away with the treason, the treachery that they have committed. God will judge them. God will judge Abimelech, and he will also judge the leaders of Shechem. But how? How is God going to do this? Well, if you turn to chapter 9, verse 23, we hear of how God does this. It tells us, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. This is how God does this. He brings judgment on the evil king, Abimelech, and on the evil people, the leaders of Shechem, 
through sending an evil spirit. Now, we don't know what this evil spirit is. Is it simply that he is describing a philosophical thing or the nature of their hearts? Their hearts are being turned or is an actual spirit that's going? We're not told. Either way, their hearts are now being shaped and turned against one another. And this is an interesting turn throughout the entire book of Judges up to this point. Whenever a spirit is sent, it is the spirit of the Lord to save his people. But now there is a spirit, not of the Lord, but of evil to judge his people. To bring their judgments back upon their own heads. And what the author of Judges is showing us and what we are all to learn here is that God is sovereign over all things and rules over the hearts of all men. He turns their hearts against one another. All God must do is restrain and pull back his sovereign hand of goodness in their lives and they will give full vent to their hearts and their spirits. Once he restrains his hand, the hearts of men will go right into evil. And it is through this means that God accomplishes justice, bringing judgment on these evil and wicked men for their evil. He will bring justice for what they have done. And this is how God will operate towards evil people. As he gives them over to more and more evil. He gives them over to the evil of their heart. People who continually turn against each other and fight against one another, he will give them over more and more to that sin as a judgment for them against their sin. And it doesn't just work in those kinds of sin, in all kinds of sin. We turn away from the Lord and this is what God does to judge us, is giving us over to more sin. Romans chapter 1, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Paul, speaking of a couple of men in one church who were doing evil in the church and teaching false doctrine, he says this in 1 Timothy, by rejecting this faith, rejecting faith and rejecting a good conscience, Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. Giving over to the power of evil is an instrument of justice in the hand of the Lord. It is the way he judges people for their sin. As Hebrews 10 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Sin is its own judgment from God. And here God is giving these men over to the sinful, depraved desires of their hearts, sending an evil spirit. This is what you sought after, this is what you will get, and you will get it in full. God does this. But that's not where the story ends. It's just not that they... So division among these men, turning against one another, something new happens immediately after this. Leaders of Shechem go and they begin to turn against Abimelech. They start robbing everybody on the hilltops, probably making Abimelech think, things are not going well in this country. The men that I thought were with me are now turning against all the people around here, stealing all the goods. And suddenly a new man shows up. 
The second scene that we see here, scenes two and three will be a bit briefer than the first scene. This man, Gaal, is not much as known about him other than that he is, calls himself a son of Hamor that we learn about in the Old Testament is the man who founded the city of Shechem. He has a father named Ebed, which means servant or slave. But here's the problem with evil. When we are given over to it, when we seek after it ourselves, it attracts other people who want evil. This man shows up, Gaal, and he schemes right along with the best of them. You guys are figuring out who wants to rule here? Well, guess what? I'm going to join the party. He, won, he makes the rival claim, in essence, look, Abimelech said he's part of your family. He's bone in your flesh. Well, guess what? I have an even better claim. He's not just one of you. I am the rightful heir to this city of Shechem. I am a descendant of Hamor, the founder of Shechem. Who is Abimelech in verse 28? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, he declares to them. And the mutiny grows even deeper in Shechem. You have a man who is just the son of a concubine of another man outside. I am the rightful heir to this kingdom. But as we see in sinful men, very often their bark is more powerful than their bite. He proclaims, tell this Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Basically, in essence, saying, I'll fight Abimelech. I'm not afraid of this man. I'll take over this city. Here comes Gaal, sowing even more division amongst all these people, all the people of Israel. But Gaal is, in his folly, doesn't realize that there is somebody who gets wind of this, a man named Zebel. This is Abimelech's army commander, his military leader. And you don't slander the king when your military commander is right there listening along. He says that, is not Zebel his officer as if to say, this man is no big deal. Abimelech, no big deal. His commanding officer, no big deal. But Zebel hears this. Verse 30, when Zebel heard these words, his anger was kindled. And the plot thickens. So Zebel goes out, he leaves, he runs to Abimelech and says, hey, You've got a rival here who's shown up. Not only is it your own men who've turned against you, now you've got this new guy who's shown up in your city and he's turning the whole people against you. And he's making these threats against you, saying, come out. So Abimelech, get your army together. And this is precisely what Abimelech does. He gathers his army, splits them into four companies, basically surrounding this city, and then he comes down from the mountains, Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, down to attack the city of Shechem. But Gaal, staying up late at night, is getting wind that something is up. Looking out, he sees, hey, there's people coming down from the mountain. But Zebul, playing trickery, says, no, there's just the mountains playing tricks with your eyes. And he does this again, a delay tactic trying to let 
Abimelech get as close as possible so that Gaal cannot take action. People are coming. And at the very moment when Abimelech's army is at their doorstep, Zebul reveals the plot. And when Gaal saw the, or in verse 37, Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now? You talk a big game. Now prove it. You who said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are these not the people that you despised? Go fulfill your word. You've got his army at your doorstep. Go fight him. But, as often happens with wicked men, they talk a big game, but they cannot follow through. And Abimelech comes and he routs Gaal and sends him away and drives him out, wounding his army. So then this whole scene shifts now to what happens in Abimelech's heart. The people turned against him. Gaal had his way for a few moments. But what happens with Abimelech? This is our third scene, a fire and a stone. Abimelech fulfills his father's role as a revengeful king, as a revengeful man. He turns against the people of Shechem, who had turned against him, but he turns against them. And he kills the townspeople. And he sets his sight. Those who remained in the field, he wipes them out, then goes into the town and kills them all. Then he sets his sights on the tower of Shechem, surrounds them, and burns them in the tower, killing a thousand people, men and women. All the leaders of Shechem now are dead. The bramble that they had turned to, fire has now come out from him, consuming them. God fulfills the word, the curse proclaimed through Jotham. Let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the people or the leaders of Shechem. But Abimelech is still like his father. He's not done. Just as Gideon went and attacked the tower of Penuel and destroyed it and killed all the people in, now he goes to the next city, down the street, likely joining in this mutiny against the people of Israel. He goes and surrounds their tower, goes up to the door foolishly, the place where a king has no business, and he sets it on fire to try and burn this. But something unexpected happens, something no one could have predicted. A certain woman One woman, the text gives us not her name, not her lineage, nothing, just says a woman takes her millstone, which she uses to crush flour, probably weighing five pounds or so, and heaves it over the edge to try and attack them. And down it falls and lands on top of Abimelech's head, and it crushes him, mortally wounding him. See, this... What we see now in the book of Judges is many of the stories we heard before begin to mirror themselves in new ways. 
Like the story of Barak and Jael, a woman gains the victory over an evil king by driving a tent peg into his head, pinning him to the ground, and crushing his skull. But this was a king on the outside, one of the foreign kings who came against Israel. Now it has come against the very first king of Israel. Just as Jael, a woman, crushed the head of a foreign king, now Abimelech's head is crushed by a woman itself. But it's an insult. It is an insult for Abimelech to be killed this way. Warriors want to die an honorable death. They want to die in such a way that shows honor. Here he's simply a passive victim by somebody who's a bystander and not somebody who at all would go to war against a foreign army. And so he tells his servant to thrust him through and put him to death, lest the world knows the way he died. Well, we all know. Word got out. Likely, that servant went and told everybody, the king's dead. This is all falling apart. God judges Abimelech for his evil. God in his sovereign power brings the humiliation of the leaders of Shechem and he brings the humiliation of Abimelech himself. He fulfills his word through his servant Jotham. And where the story began with Abimelech slaying the 70 sons on a single stone Now a single stone is hurled from the top of a tower and slays Abimelech. The story has completed itself. God has brought justice on the evil king, on those evil people. So what do we learn? What do we learn from this amazing story in many ways, shocking, disturbing? What do we learn? We see about how the way that God brings about justice. It is not at all the way that we often think of how God ought to bring about justice. Yet in God's sovereign hand, he brings evil to an end by sending it. See, where Satan works to bring destruction and to bring nothing good, God can use all things for his sovereign purposes to actually bring about the end of evil. God is truly sovereign over all things, both good and evil in this world. But only he can bring good out of something that nobody would look upon as good. He can bring justice. Now, as our catechism and confession says, God is not the author of sin, He does not make people sin, yet he allows them. By giving them over to their sinful desires, he is letting them go their path, turning their hearts wherever they will, and he brings about his work. God is not doing this to good people. The reason we all struggle with this question is that we assume that we're good. Why would God do this? Well, he would do this because you are evil, and you deserve all this and more, every single one of us. We deserve all the evil that falls upon us. It 
Is this a hopeless situation for us? Are we just simply awaiting the day when God will bring the evil that we have done back upon our heads? Yes. That's what we're all waiting in one sense. But that's not all that God does in sending evil. God works salvation for his people. Bringing evil men with their evil plans, God also can bring deliverance for his people. We look at this moment of injustice, of vileness, of evil being done, and we say, what is happening here? But there is a moment that we all know. The greatest injustice, the greatest vileness, the greatest evil committed by the hands of men in all of human history is also the same moment when God is accomplishing the greatest moment of justice. The true Abimelech, he is the son of the king, the son of God himself, came as a man and was crucified by the hands of evil men. Acts 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter tells these men, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God sovereignly working through evil and wicked men to accomplish his salvation for his people. Acts 4, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Our world looks upon Jesus as a victim, a victim of his own plan. You go against the government, this is your result. They look at him merely as somebody as an example. Yes, you're going to suffer if you do good. That is not who Jesus is for us. He is the one who conquers evil by suffering under it. The greatest, highest injustice is also the moment of greatest justice for us. But unlike Abimelech, the king who was falsely appointed and judged for his own sins, God brought about judgment on his son, not for Christ's sins, but for ours. And Jesus was taking the fiery judgment upon himself for us, taking the fiery curse upon himself at the hands of wicked men so that we would go free. He did this so that you would be free. So that you can say, I will not suffer ultimately the fate of Abimelech. The fiery judgment has passed onto Jesus Christ. The evil that was due to me has now fallen upon him. The ultimate judgment of God, his curse being poured down, In the story of Jotham, he tells this trees as they go down from the olive tree to the fig tree, then down to the vine, and all the way down to the ground, the bramble, the thorn bush, picturing the curse 
as they go to this cursed life. And that is precisely what Jesus Christ has endured. The curse for us. And it's because Christ stood in that place, taking the evil of men upon himself so that he would suffer the wrath and punishment of God for us. Unlike Abimelech, there is no fiery judgment that awaits us, but a hopeful end because Christ has taken it away. The full wrath of God on himself, done away forever. And that is our hope today. So friends, rest in what Christ has done for you, extinguishing the flames of God's fiery wrath against you for your sin, accomplishing perfect justice on your behalf. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do rejoice in Jesus Christ who has endured the judgment that he is the true Abimelech, the true one who was the faithful, anointed the king in truth, the son of the king. And Lord, he has endured that all for our sakes. Help us to rest in what Christ has done for us and to not look to this world. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.